Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Good afternoon and welcome to the latest edition of TSG Talk. From crisis to change, what I wish I had known earlier in my career. Being able to learn from the experience of colleagues who operate at the cutting edge of medicine is both a privilege and essential if we are to truly achieve the best outcome for our patients. Today, we have the privilege to talk with the Surgeon General of the United Kingdom Defence Medical Services, Major General Tim Hodgetts. General Hodgetts' career has been exceptional. He has been at the forefront of driving emergency medicine forward in multiple complex theatres for over two decades. Today, we will discuss the important lessons he has learned in leadership and how this can be applied to maximise the outcome of our patients. Good afternoon, General Hodgetts. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on TSG Talk this afternoon. And uh, thank you so much for your time. How how are you this afternoon? I'm very well, and uh, thank you for inviting me to talk. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, General Hodges, just before we go into the subject tonight that I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to to listening to, could you just give our listeners a little bit of your your, your background on, 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 on your career so far? Of course. And h- hello to the listeners. I'm a doctor by background and I joined the army at medical school. So I commissioned in 1983. So it's now been 40 years that I've served in uniform. And my specialty is that I'm an emergency physician with a special interest in pre-hospital care and disaster medicine. And I was both the first defence consultant advisor in emergency medicine and the inaugural defence professor. Uh, Because odd as it seems, emergency medicine is the youngest of our secondary care disciplines within the military. But my current roles are as the Surgeon General for the United Kingdom Armed Forces. So I'm the functional leader in all aspects of defence medicine. I'm the Master General of the Army Medical Services. And I'm also in parallel the Chair of the Committee of Surgeon Generals in NATO. And my careers take me on... uh, many deployments to Northern Ireland, Kosovo, Oman, Kuwait, Iraq and Afghanistan. But my singular focus, I think, throughout my career has been about ensuring optimal patient outcomes in that deployed setting. And you'll find some of the concepts and courses that I've designed over the years since the early 1990s are in wide use nationally and internationally in both the military and civil settings. Uh, th- thank you, General Rogers. That really is um, quite quite a, a diverse um, career that you're, you're you, that, that you have behind you. What what I'm going to find really interesting tonight, uh, and I, I think it's really important you bring it out, is that your drive always has been to 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 ensure your patient outcomes are at the optimum. And certainly, one of the things we constantly try to work with at TSG Talk is is looking at how people in different areas of or often emergency medicine look to minimize minimize suffering and maximize survival 
So it will be um, it'll be fascinating to hear all the lessons you've learned and how how you achieve that. So so to really um, to go into the the, the the main area of our talk tonight. Um, recently, you you gave an inaugural lecture to the um, to the the Medical Military Academy in Serbia as a visiting professor, and you discussed the ten lessons that you wish you had known earlier in your career. Could you just give us a little bit more of information on that? Because it does sound fascinating, um, you know, with the diversity of what you've done uh, and the cutting edge of where you've been in medicine and, and what what. What have been the lessons you've learned? I'm really interested to to find out to find out this this information. Of course, I'll be really happy to uh, to count down those ten lessons from ten through to one, and we can finish up with the the bronze, silver, and gold uh, those lessons. Uh, but perhaps just by way of an introduction would be my preferred definition of leadership. If we're going to, if we're going to talk leadership lessons, and that identifies to me the difference between management and leadership. Because management, in my eyes, is about getting things done. But leadership is about inspiring others to get things done. So it follows that all leaders are managers, but not necessarily all managers are leaders. And in the military setting, that inspiration may be to do something counterintuitive to your own safety. So if we move into the uh, the 10 leadership lessons, at, at number 10, is that decisiveness is the most valuable leadership characteristic. And we can find lessons in history from Napoleon, who identified that nothing is more difficult and and therefore more precious than being able to decide. And he said that of his staff officers. But I think one of the principles that I am particularly drawn towards is General Colin Powell's 4070 principle, which is about making decisions on limited information. Uh, And he said that if you wait for more than 70% of the information, then the enemy may already have acted. So if you can make a decision on at least 40% of information, then that would be safe. So that 40-70 principle, which we'd also refer to as bounded rationality. Uh, And if I give uh, an example uh, of this, I was Uh, in Germany in 1989. So we've got to wind the clock quite a way back here. Uh, And I was a young doctor in the British Military Hospital in Hanover. And the IRA were really active at that time. We had two car bombs in the street where I lived. We had drive-by shootings at the hospital. There were shootings at the channel ports. So what did we do when a telephone coded warning came through to the hospital that there was a bomb in the hospital? Well, we evacuated, but the Uh, the the key issue there is that someone had to decide. You had to decide to evacuate or to not evacuate. And either of those would have been acceptable. But to say, I don't know, would not be acceptable because people are looking to you in a crisis for a decision. And you're making that decision on limited information. Now, the information may change and therefore you may change your decision. And that's absolutely fine. Now, I took a lot of that learning Um, from uh, the early exposure to terrorism uh, early in my career. And I did the Diploma in Immediate Medical Care in its first year, uh, 1988 to 1989. And I got the gold medal for that. Mm -hmm. But I turned those revision notes into a book. It was my first book, which I wrote on a £30 Boots typewriter and did my own drawings, uh, called Self-Assessment in Immediate Medical Care. But the key within that 
uh, was that there were exercises, a train crash, a terrorist bomb. What do you do with those multiple casualties? So my head was already in that space, and that proved to be really useful um, not long after. So I'm going to take you now to number nine, which is where you can lead from anywhere in the organisation. And I found myself uh, in um, the summer of 1991, summer and autumn of 1991, in Musgrave Park Hospital in Belfast. And on the 2nd of November 1991, at 3.53 in the afternoon, and I remember it well uh, because it was during the Rugby World Cup final, England versus Australia, the IRA targeted the doctors and nurses in that hospital who were watching the uh, the World Cup final in the basement social club. Now, fortunately, I wasn't in that room. Uh, I was actually packing my box because it was uh, the last day of my tour in Northern Ireland. Uh, and I was in the uh, in the officers' mess listening to it on the radio, uh, but um, that that bomb went off, destroying the uh, operating theatre, destroying the emergency department, destroying the intensive care unit. The hospital was on fire. At the first floor had collapsed into the ground floor. The ground floor into the basement. And as that junior doctor, even though I wasn't the senior rank present, I was. Uh, the senior clinician. I was a registrar, whereas the other doctors were SHOs. Uh, and I'd done this pre-hospital care uh, training and I'd written about it. So my head was in the right space to be the medical commander at that particular instant. So the learning from that is that leadership is defined by your actions and not by your appointment. So it wasn't necessarily the senior officer that had to take the lead. It was the person who was most appropriate uh, to, to lead. So, so long as you can be decisive, which is supported by your knowledge, your self-confidence and your ability to communicate with others, then you can lead from anywhere in the organisation. And I reflected on that particular incident really considerably. And I got what I would call post-traumatic growth from that event. Now, uh, you, everybody listening will know quite a lot about post-traumatic stress because that's what we talk about, this, this expectation that if you're exposed to something traumatic, you're going to come away from it damaged or even broken with, with post-traumatic stress. But that's not necessarily the case. You can take these really difficult experiences and turn them into something positive, which allows you to come to terms with that incident and, and to move forward. It doesn't alter the fact that your worldview will be changed and we are all affected by the instance that we're exposed to but you can turn them into something positive so i i took that instant and turned it into mims major instant medical management and support so within a year of that instant i was with civilian colleagues in manchester and together with the advanced life support group we developed mims uh, within a matter of weeks, we'd written two books and, and, and done all the educational materials. And those many of those listening will know those seven core principles of command, safety, communication, assessment, triage, treatment, transport that came out of that. So on to number eight. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Or if I can paraphrase uh, from General Sir Richard Barons, uh, who's uh, one of our uh, recent bosses, proceed until apprehended. Um, and what, what's this all about? Well, this is about mission command. Mission command is something quite peculiar to the army over the other services because the army operates in a very dispersed way that the uh, commanding officer will give orders to his or her troops and then send them out on the ground. And unless you've empowered people to do what they think is right, 
to meet the commander's intent, then they're going to keep stopping and asking for permission. So you have to give them that empowerment. So mission command requires empowerment. And if you're going to empower people, you have to trust them. And if you do trust your subordinates, then that will generate followership because they will respect you. And followership will create a genuine leader. So then we've got number seven, that moral courage is as important as physical courage. And there was a book written after the Second World War by Lord Moran called The Anatomy of Courage, in which he identified or, or characterized courage as strength in the face of fear, pain or grief. I think we all understand physical courage. Um, and I would give an you know, example from my own experience, you know, going on the back of the helicopter, flying into the firefight, getting out the back of the helicopter to be able to find uh, the injured casualties, retrieve them, and then fly them back to the hospital. So there has to be a, a degree of physical courage uh, within that kind of setting. But moral courage is about standing up for what you believe in. Um, and it can be really difficult, particularly if uh, there's obviously people against you, there's open opposition. If you can see that the road is going to be quite long uh, to get to where you need to get to. And there may be obvious adverse consequences or potentially adverse consequences for going down this road. And there may be limited uh, resources, whether that's people or money or other resources, to help you. And an example of moral courage, standing up for what you believe in, I would say is uh, when we introduced tourniquets or when I specifically uh, pushed for the introduction of tourniquets uh, into the British military around 2003, 2004. Uh, and there was some evidence that tourniquets would be beneficial. And we were taking that evidence from the Second World War, from Vietnam and from Israeli evidence. Uh, but there was active opposition within our own organisation, actually from our own orthopaedic surgeons, who said that if we give tourniquets to soldiers, then there will be many limbs that are taken off unnecessarily as a result of that. Well, I think that rather uh, flew in the face of the whole rationale behind tourniquets, because a tourniquet is for life-threatening limb bleeding that cannot be controlled by other means. And if you follow that mantra, if you follow that precept, you can only ever do good with a tourniquet. And in fact, you will uh, disadvantage the very group of people who you, you are wanting to help, the people who will otherwise die if you don't put a tourniquet on. The Surgeon General at the time uh, did uh, support that um, rationale for using tourniquets. And we can all see the rest in history that we've developed uh, uh, or, or garnered substantial evidence uh, from our experience that tourniquets have saved uh, countless lives. But what I found uh, uh, happening, and I, I know you're aware of this particular argument uh, as well, Colin, that uh, 10, 15 years later, we were going through exactly the same arguments in the civilian setting trying to translate that military understanding that tourniquets do work on our valuable in, in, in pre-hospital immediate care into that civilian setting. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I've battled for that uh, against, uh, against the flow uh, to uh, get the understanding and the recognition that uh, tourniquets uh, are appropriate in the civilian setting too. 
So I think moral courage is also linked to determination. And when you know it is the right thing to do, I would strongly encourage you to keep going. Uh, and uh, I perhaps challenge the audience to think, if you can imagine a shoal of fish, are you ever the fish swimming in the opposite direction? Are you ever prepared to uh, swim against the status quo and, and challenge uh, the norm? And do remember that only dead fish follow the flow. So at number six, I would say that you can and indeed you must make time for what is important. But in so doing, you really have to understand what your most productive time of day is and you need to defend it. So I'm I'm a lark. If I want to get something done, I will get up very early in the morning. And my best time of day is actually about 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. In the evening, I fade. I'm no good late into the evening. Some people can stay up very late at night and that's their best time. It doesn't matter just so long as you understand what your best time is and you and you make that your quality time. Don't fill your best time with emails. Fill that time with your strategic thinking, with your creative time uh, when you can really uh, make a difference. And I'd also say that it's important to take time for reflection. So as adult learners, it's important to have reflective uh, practice. Now, how you do that reflection, whether you write a diary, uh, you put it into your uh, online uh, appraisal materials, you write an article, you write a book, whatever you do, uh, uh, do recognise the importance of that. That's what creates professional growth. For me, actually, it's been about writing war poetry. Uh, and I have now been writing contemporary war poetry for 25 years, and I've started to expose that and I've started to present it. I, I've done some at the Edinburgh Fringe, had some in uh, museum uh, ex exhibitions, because I'm starting to feel comfortable um, to, uh, to to expose that. Uh, and if you really want, uh, I can inflict a bit of pain on you and, and give you one of, the, one, one of the poems. Would you like one? I can certainly do it. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at an image, uh, and that image will help me remember this, this particular poem. And I'm looking at an image of the funeral cortege that is passing through Wootton Bassett. So you'll you'll all remember those images of when dead soldiers were brought back from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, in numbers, and those streets were lined by the families and by the, uh, the the British Legion as the bodies were being taken to Oxford, where they would have the uh, the post mortem. So the poem that I'm going to uh, uh, recite to you is called "The Black Snake," long and black, with high gloss back is our most deadly snake. Through glass belly, the mourners see Britain on the caskets draped. The legion's flags with respect sag, dipping as the snake glides by. A petal shower forms a thin cover as families in silence cry. This wooden meal's far from unreal, a consequence of modern war, where choice, not need, impels we feed the virtuous cycle to endure. And certainly when I've been in difficult situations as the senior doctor with nobody else really to turn to or talk to, this has been my way of reflecting on difficult situations uh, and being able to stick it in a box and move on to the next patient. So at number five, I would say it is hard, but absolutely worthwhile to make something simple. And I'm reminded of what Churchill said 
when he said, I'm sorry for writing you a long letter, but I didn't have time to write a short one because it's actually quite hard to simplify and you've got to make a great effort if you're going to make things simple for uh, for many people. Uh, and I am blessed to some extent with uh, with being a serial simplifier. But let's just remember what General Colin Powell, again, one of my, my favourite uh, um, uh, leaders, uh, said. And he identified as a, as a characteristic of leadership that great leaders are almost always great simplifiers who can cut through argument, debate and doubt to offer a solution that everyone can understand. So some of the things that I've simplified, uh, one you've heard already, how do you take the approach to a multiple casualty incident and simplify it and make it consistent, irrespective of the nature of that incident? Well, that's those seven principles of CSCAD, command, safety, communications, assessment, triage, treatment, transport. But in 1998, I wanted to make things simpler for every soldier because every soldier might deal with multiple casualties. It may only be three or four. But to that individual soldier, it's a mass casualty incident. So how do you take those uh, uh, principles and make them uh, valuable and uh, uh, usable for every soldier? So I rewrote Battlefield First Aid in 19, uh, 1998, and we called it Battlefield Casualty Drills. But the, 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 the precept was a distillation of CSCAT to control, then act, control the incident, then assess communicate, triage, and now follow some simple treatment steps. You follow them in this order, then you'll be doing the right thing in the right order. I've also thought hard about how we standardise information in pre-hospital care. Uh, one of the messages is embedded in, in the MIMS course. It's methane. Um, and I invented the methane message uh, when on a course in Stirling in 1992 at a golf club when I was listening to a policeman uh, talking about um, the uh, Lockerbie disaster, uh, and he was using the mnemonic chalet uh, as to what information would be communicated from the scene. And I thought, well, that's all the right information, but in the wrong order. You don't start off by blurting out casualties. You would say where you are and what's going on. So I reorganised chalet into methane. And then thinking about um, the information that you would pass um, on a single patient when handing over, I came up with the missed message, uh, mechanism of injuries, signs and treatment. And we first published that in, uh, I think it was 1996, in emergency care textbook for, for paramedics. Uh, and then we also amended that to at missed um, when we uh, were using this information or using the missed message on the nine liner in Afghanistan. And we realised that actually it'd be useful to know the age of the individual and the time that they were injured and, and uh, abridged the missed message to at missed and that's now in international use and i think perhaps one of the pr profound um simple um concepts was changing abc to cabc and putting that c before airway the catastrophic hemorrhage and although it's just one letter change it was a profound change in the way that we were going to um, equip people far forward, the skills we were going to give them, so the training we had to do, um, and the impact that it had on outcomes was was very, very profound. But just one simple letter change uh, led to um, uh, all those uh, subsequent developments. So on number four, 
is the need for an adaptive leadership style. And if you look at the leadership literature, you'll find sort of seven uh, characteristic leadership styles, which are charismatic, transformational, participative, transactional, adaptive, quiet, and servant. And I think a key uh, is that uh, different styles suit different environments, uh, and leaders have to be able to, to uh, adapt their style. And I've certainly found this, the style that works when you were in a, a, a kinetic environment, when you're in a conflict environment, different leadership styles will work than when you come back into the NHS, where it's um, a, a more collegial style, a softer style of leadership uh, that is uh, is necessary to uh, to get things done. So you've got to be prepared to adapt your style. But even within that uh, deployed setting, I would find myself having to have different styles for different situations. So when there's high uncertainty, when you first arrive as a unit and people are a little bit unsure of themselves in the recess room, you've got to tell individuals exactly what to do. And then they will feel comfortable and indeed feel good about themselves if they complete the task that they've been told to do. And indeed, if you don't do that, all the doctors will pick up a cannula and it'll be death by acupuncture because they'll all try and do the same thing. So when there's high uncertainty uh, or inexperience or indeed any internal conflict in the team, you need that transactional style to give them, uh, you know, give them direct um, orders. But in a team that becomes more experienced, uh, you can have a more participative uh, style. So this will be a prevailing style that you see in a mature healthcare uh, team or the type of style that you would see in a Formula One pit crew where everybody has got a predetermined task and they don't really uh, need to talk to each other to, to get on and do it. It just happens uh, uh, as uh, uh, as the patient uh, is, is put in front of the team. But if something goes wrong, and in the Formula and pit crew, for example, if you spray a bit of petrol over the engine and there's a fire, then uh, somebody has to step in and lead that particular uh, crisis until you're back on an even keel. And then sometimes, and particularly on operations, unusual things happen. Uh, you've got to improvise. You've got to change direction. And that's when a transformational style uh, is required. And throughout those, you may have a charismatic style to, uh, to carry people along uh, uh, with you. So number three, then, uh, getting the bronze award is that multinationality makes for slower but better decisions. And I've worked in multinational settings uh, repeatedly. So I've been the medical director within the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, which is a NATO construct. Uh, I'm currently the chair of uh, the Committee of Surgeon Generals uh, in, in NATO, and I've deployed uh, with international teams and led the international uh, field hospital in Afghanistan in 2009. And what I've found is that there are benefits. Um, and what you can do in that multinational setting is you can take the very best of each of those uh, national approaches and you can blend them together into a hybrid, which is is never going to happen when you're uh, uh, working only in one nation. Uh, even if you get people popping in, they're going to have to follow uh, what the framework nation uh, does. And there's also an opportunity for burden sharing when you're operating at scale or duration, when you're working in that multinational setting. Uh, but there are some predictable challenges. Uh, uh, obvious among them is language. Uh, and when I went with the Danish hospital, I learned Danish. 
uh, yeah, because I was concerned that if there was going to be a mass casualty incident, might people uh, fall back on their own language if they're in a, an anxiety uh, situation? So I learned enough Danish to be able to run a recess in Danish uh, and be able to uh, sort of meet and greet and do the conversational uh, Danish. Now, I never actually had to use it in that way, but it was so empowering uh, because learning the language helped you learn the culture and learning the culture uh, helped you fit in and you were no longer an outsider. You're no longer somebody coming into their team to tell people what to do. Rather, you were uh, one of one of the group, one of the in-group. In You'll also find um, multinationally that there might be different scopes of, of practice, particularly medics and paramedics that may not be used in the same way, may not even exist in, in, in some countries. So you've got to understand that you may have different professionals delivering the same skills when uh, nations come together, and you need to respect that. So if there's a nurse anaesthetist, uh, which we had from uh, the US and from Denmark, but they don't exist in the UK, then still allow them to practice uh, against their, their their competences. And yes, uh, people may have slightly different guidelines in terms of drugs uh, or, or protocols, but when you're working in a multinational setting, there will be a framework uh, nation who, uh, whose guidelines you will follow, uh, although do challenge uh, and offer better ways of doing things because we can always amend the guidelines. And I did study international cultural theory to uh, try and anticipate where the frictions uh, may lie. And I would strongly um, recommend to anybody who's going to work in a multinational setting to look up Gert Hofsted. Uh, he's got a website and you can compare any number of nations together against six key characteristics. And yes, it is stereotyping, but by heck does it play out in reality. And if you do it in advance, then you can uh, genuinely work out where those frictions might be and defuse them. At number two, getting the silver award, is that the world craves certainty in crisis and change. But a key leadership characteristic is being able to cope with uncertainty. Uh, and if I can just quote the physician to Henry V uh, from the, the 15th century, who was a guy called Nicholas Colney, and he said, it is the mark of a mature mind to bear uncertainty with equanimity. So sometimes you just got to brass it out uh, with un uncertainty uh, and be bold and accept that you don't know everything. Uh, and um, uh, you, uh, you, you, know, you, you have to act on that limited information. It goes back to the 4070 principle and the bounded rationality that we said earlier. Now, if you are in a situation that is highly certain and everybody agrees, well, the requirement for leadership is very low. This is everybody's comfort zone. But as you move through high certainty to high uncertainty, and if you move through high agreement to high disagreement, this is where you are getting into the place where leadership is absolutely critical and where the leadership magic can happen, because with uncertainty comes opportunity. Now, having said that, in the military, we do like to try and uh, uh, give a framework for certainty in the most complex, uncertain uh, settings. So war and conflict is a very rapidly changing, very uncertain environment, but we still try and apply a simple campaign plan over the top of that 
we've got a mission. We know what our end state is, what good looks like. We've got what we call a center of gravity, the key thing that you've got to attack and defend in order to be effective. We may have a main effort when we've got limited time or people or other resources. What do we focus on to keep keep moving towards our target, even though we may not be able to move at the pace we wish? And we identify the various lines of operation, the various roads that will get us from our mission through uh, to, to our end state. So there are ways of codifying uh, a, a plan uh, to get you through that uh, uncertainty. And I would also like to mention the work of uh, John Cotter, who wrote a book called Leading Change back in the 1990s. And he particularly uh, used industry as, as an example and the motor uh, industry. And he identified eight steps to leading complex change, which starts with creating a sense of urgency, you know, knowing how to uh, press the buttons of your organization and get everybody jangling. But in so doing, uh, be building a guiding coalition, generating a vision and communicating that vision and removing the obstacles as you go through, producing quick wins to keep everybody uh, um, on side, particularly when it's a long project, and then building on that change and anchoring it in, in culture. So there's these eight steps and they're absolutely transferable to the healthcare setting. But what I would say is that Cotter was wrong. There are not eight steps. There are nine, because the first step, which is missing in his model, is the most important. And it's to understand and frame the problem. Take the time to properly understand the problem so that you are solving the right problem before you start creating that sense of urgency and charging off in the direction of change. And I have used that model really successfully for over 20 years in a number of major change uh, programs. So this brings us to number one. What is the, the, the gold uh, uh, lesson? And I'd say that change may appear easy, but people can be difficult. And how do you deal with difficult people? So the strategist Basil Little Hart between uh, the world wars said that the one thing harder than getting a new idea into the military mind is getting an old one out. And I think you can uh, all uh, relate to this online, that, uh, that that probably works in your own uh, environment as well. It's not just at uh, the military setting. And Cotter's actually written another uh, great book. It's called That's Not How We Do It Here. Again, I would commend that to you to understand why people might be obstructive uh, to change and how you work around at those obstructions. But I'll give one uh, little piece of advice. If you were to go into the park to feed the birds and you've got some bread, do you throw the loaf of bread at the birds? Because if you do, they're all going to fly away because they are frightened by that amount of change. If you feed them crumbs, then they will stay around and, and take uh, take that food. So beware how much change you try and bring in at any one particular time, because you might fright the frighten the audience that you're trying to carry with you. Also on dealing with uh, difficult people, uh, people online will be familiar perhaps with the concept of the toxic leader or at the far extreme of toxic leadership, the uh, the workplace psychopath. Uh, and it's been identified that every large organization has one to two percent of people who fulfill the criteria of being a workplace psychopath. Go away and read the literature 
I'm sure you'll start to identify uh, the people that may fulfill uh, those particular criteria. Um, but it's people who may uh, be uh, motivated by self-interest uh, rather than uh, the interest of the team and the organisation. Uh, and it's uh, people who can have a very negative effect on the organisational climate uh, and um, uh, you know, potentially a, a really negative uh, impact on uh, retention. But how do you deal with toxic leaders? And again, if you look in large organisations, you might identify these people continue to move through the organisation because they get recommended for promotion. In order to get them out of one situation, they get recommended uh, to be promoted uh, um, into uh, the next step. But what that does is it reinforces the behaviours uh, as acceptable, and then they're just toxic over a larger number of people. So what are your tools? Um, uh, uh, do you feel confident enough to confront the individual? Um, which could be uh, very self-damaging and, and really uh, very hard to do? Or at very least, do you feel confident to seek help from a more experienced colleague? Because these behaviours have to be stamped out uh, to, uh, to get to that more inclusive environment. But I did write myself uh, with a couple of colleagues in 2017 um, about um, aspects of dealing with difficult people. Uh, and we identified what's called a process zoo. And the phrase went something like, if you work in an organisation or part of an organisation where it's become more important to do it the right way than to do the right thing, then you may well be working in a process zoo. Come and meet the animals, the benign and passive sheep, the benign and active monkey, the malignant and passive sloth and the malignant and active porcupine and each of those um, characteristics were described so if you want to uh, go away and uh, have a look at that uh, you'll you'll find it online uh, as the uh, as the process zoo and uh, if necessary i can provide that link colin so you can uh, put it uh, on the uh, on the website so my final thought then in preparing for leadership is to take a quote from oscar wilde who said, it is what you read when you don't have to that determines what you will be when you can't help it. So the question then is, what are you reading that is preparing you for uh, the uncertain uh, and those difficult situations of the future? So just to start summarising, uh, I, I hope uh, that I've been able to define the difference between leadership and management, at least from my perspective, and the difference is inspiration. And then to take you through 10 precepts of leadership for crisis and change and count down to what I identify as at least my bronze, silver and gold, and perhaps allow the audience to go away and reflect and think how those lessons might apply to their own situation. Thank you so much, General Hodges, for that. That is absolutely inspirational. Um, just, just a couple. I mean, there's so much there to to think about and and, and to cover. Uh, but just a couple of thoughts from from me on, on what you said to to try and sum up, summarize in my head a little bit. Um, I think one of the things I've always noticed uh, working as a medic, often in remote locations with specialized teams, is um, you, you the the first point you brought out on decisiveness is so important for the medic on the ground, because what I often find, you can often be a very junior member of that team, but when there's a medical emergency, everybody will look at you. 
And they're not expecting a wishy-washy decision. They want a decision uh, because they will have to put a series of logistics and, and wide considerations in place as part of their wider operation. So I think I think understanding, a, you know, for medics deploying that you, your decisive comes from knowledge as well and confidence in what you're doing. And I think we, sh- we can never be decisive without those two things, but being able to make decisive decisions so people have confidence in that decision is so important when we deploy. And I think the, you know, the point seven I really picked up on re- up as well as moral courage uh, to do for the best of your patient. I certainly can look back at my career, uh, whereas a fairly junior medic, I've argued with far more senior, clinic senior clinical people that actually I didn't believe they were making the right decision given the circumstances that we were in um, sometimes I was right sometimes I was wrong but again basing it on experience uh, basing it on uh, on your confidence and what you can do I, I think having the back of your patients important uh, and, and not just going with the flow because sometimes given where you are uh, that's not the best thing for your patient and if you believe it's right, I, th- I think you certainly have to put your, your argument up in, in, a, in an intelligent, respected way to, to get your point across. I think that's hugely important from what you so, so I detect that uh, individual who's prepared <laughs> to be the fish to swim in that opposite direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've had to do it personally. I've had to do it a few times. And, and I'm sure many deployed medics will, will have come across this type of incident whether it's in the med i also find it an industry where there's often conflicts of the actual operation that's going on and the patient you've got on the ground that needs certain things done that will that will that that will conflict to their operations and it can be quite a heated conversation but ultimately you're, you're trying to get the best for your patient so keeping that moral courage as the medic on the ground um it, I think I think it's a really important point for anybody deploying. Um, one I really picked up on was was point five, making it simple, and how difficult that is. Um, I mean, obviously, this is something at TSG we concentrate a lot on is trying to take complex tasks and make the equipment functional. And and it's really weird, uh, as you've pointed out, with MIMS. MIMS looks so simple, but takes ridiculous amounts of times to filter it down uh, to make it that simple. And people often look at our equipment and other equipment go oh that makes so much sense that's simple but then you'll you you i think you only know that your own process you've gone through to make it that simple i think as well colin uh with with simplicity comes compromise Mm. um because you you cannot be all things to all people Mm. and the simpler that you get uh then uh the, the, the the more sort of exceptions potentially start to creep in yeah. so it's finding that level of simplicity mm. that um makes it effective on the ground but he but he's still very widely applicable yeah i think that's and, and just to uh, move that simplicity into a, a slightly different area um when you're looking at sports leadership um any of the books i've read around sir, sir alex ferguson the one thing that always came about why he was such a good manager and a, such a good coach on, on, on the field was he made the plan simple. Everybody went onto the field with a clear plan of what they had to do and understood their responsibilities. Um, and that's one thing that comes out all the time, certainly in high sports leadership, is that good teams understand their role, but their role is made simple for them. Uh, so I think that backs up everything you were saying there. Uh, the top three points are, are absolutely fantastic. And, and I think I'll come back to the, the toxic team culture as well to be so aware of that um, because it can absolutely destroy teams. 
Um, and, and and I don't think it's an easy thing to deal with at times. I think it's probably one of the more complex things. Yeah. But I think if we're trying to lead efficient medical teams and do the best things for our patients to get the best outcome, which you, you, you talked about at the very beginning, I think having that team without toxicity is, is difficult at times. Uh, but it's so important. And I think that's a hugely important thing for any medical leader to bring out, which you, you've, you've eloquently brought out on your on, on your explanation of it. So so that's just a little summary of what I got from it. I'm sure our readers will take what you've said and get so many more things from it and, and link it back to their own experience as well. So so thank you so much for that. Uh, it's really been been fascinating to to listen to it. We we get to finish with one question from from uh, from TSG Talk, which which always gets people thinking, and it's really to say if you know with with all your experience, if you were to pick one piece of medical equipment you would always have with you, no matter where you deployed, what do you think it might be? So, so I think this has changed over time. Um, as a young doctor, when I was sort of focused on treatment of the individual patient that I might happen across in the street, I might have said a pocket mask because I've stopped to give basic life support in the street. Or I might say a tourniquet because I've also stopped to render life-saving first aid at the, at the roadside. But if it was um, about identifying myself as a doctor in a sort of a, a leadership role, either at the scene or in hospital, then if you just pop a stethoscope around your neck, um, it is uh, a remarkable, universally understood identity badge. It's pretty useless as a, as a diagnostic tool in the pre-hospital setting because of all, all of the noise, but it will tell everybody there's the doctor. But I think that the, the third um, element uh, or difference I would look at with this bit of kit is that on tour, I've always carried a whistle around my neck. Uh, and in the most challenging of settings, such as a major incident, when the team anxiety is high and the recess room is just a cacophony of comp competing voices, a single blast on the whistle will bring instant silence and everybody will turn and look at you. And you've then got about five seconds to grip the room and give direction and start to establish order and a degree of relative calm. Whistle. That is a new one as well. It's been interesting with everybody we've interviewed at TSJ. Nobody has given the same answer, but you've now brought us into a new criteria. Before the whistle, um, <laughs> people would look at a, a piece of equipment for, tra for treatment. And, and there was also quite a heavy weighting towards people people taking knowledge with them as well and specific yeah. books. Uh, but I think what you've brought into play there is a management tool. Yeah, in, in the whistle. So we now have a new criteria. Leadership, please. Lead, leadership, sorry. <laughs> leadership, sorry. I was not listening. <laughs> so absolutely. So we, 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 yet again, we have a different piece of equipment um, on, on our favourite equipment. It's always a wonderful answer to find. And, and, and thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, so, General Hodgetts, it's been an absolutely pleasure to talk with you today. Is, is there anything else you would you'd like to pass across to our listeners just before we, we conclude this this, this afternoon's uh, conversation. So I, I think we could uh, sit and chat for quite some time, Colin, because mm -hmm. as we know, there's nothing that old soldiers like more than putting up a sandbag <laughs> and, and telling a few war mm -hmm. stories. Um, but I will just signpost one journal article, and I wrote this during COVID to transfer lessons from the military to the civilian environment. And it's in the journal BMJ Leader, and it's entitled Innovating at Pace During Crisis. 
It's an open source article, so there's no fee to uh, to download it. And what's in it is my distillation into a series of simple mnemonics of what we've done well in military innovation and where we can continue uh, to improve. Otherwise, I'd say uh, uh, go and reflect, audience, on those 10 lessons and and see how it applies to your setting and give us some feedback if uh, mm. if you can. Absolutely. Well, once again, General Hodgetts, thank you so much. It's uh, As you say, there's so much reflection I'm certainly going to take from that. And I know I'll be listening back a few times just to, to think through each individual point and into how I would scope those areas out and, and think through them in a little bit more depth. Uh, and I'm sure many of our listeners will be, be doing those things and actually improving because of it. So I'm hugely grateful for, for that input. So that concludes our conversation at TSG Talk tonight. Um, if you have any questions or um, would you like more information about anything we've talked tonight, we will put this up as a LinkedIn post and the, the podcast will be on, on all the major platforms as well, as, as well as our website at tsgassociates.co.uk. So thank you once again for listening. We'll be back soon with another unique subject and colleague, and we will look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.